0: Log Talk Radio,
1: this is Patty Holstrand. And I'm on live. This is K Wad Radio, and you found us today. We're at the beginning of our brand new programming for 2013. And we're very, very pleased today to bring a special guest. He's going to be here in town in Mesa, Arizona, come at the beginning of August for Capricorn Revolutions. very long-time friend of the science fiction and fantasy fan community, Lee Modessa, Jr. Lee is a New York Times bestseller author of over 60 novels, primarily science fiction and fantasy, a number of short stories, and numerous technical and economic articles. His novels have sold millions of copies in the U.S. and worldwide.
2: are you there? I'm here. (laughs) How
1: are you doing today?
2: Doing well. It's a little colder up here.
1: Oh yeah, well you know it's a little colder than usual here in Arizona too. It's uh, cold all over the place. (laughs) Uh, Of course I can't, it's probably about 50, 50 degrees and probably going down now because it's getting dark but uh, we certainly can't complain in Arizona. Although, although uh, this weekend, and it's kind of funny, this weekend I went to Tucson and uh, we were getting our books out ready to sell and it started hailing.
2: That's <laughs> a little unusual. <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, I go, uh, here we are outside and what do we do with the books? <laughs> oh, those things happen. So I'm really, really pleased to have you uh, on our radio station, of course, and I know a lot of people like have some questions that they already sent me and hopefully they'll come on and actually ask questions. Uh and, uh we'll just keep on going. I, I obviously gave you a little bit of a uh, introduction, not sure if you heard it. I did hear it. <laughs> now give us a little bit more. Um when you guys started in writing, uh when was your first you know, story published, and how did that come to be?
2: Well, actually, I never set out to write science fiction and fantasy. I was going to be a poet, and I actually wrote and published in small literary magazines for almost 10 years before I ever wrote a science fiction story. And it became pretty clear I was not going to be uh, the next William Butler Yeats or T.S. Eliot. And I was in my late 20s, and somebody said, you've read science fiction your whole life why don't you write something? And I thought, well, why not? Uh, The poetry wasn't going anyplace. And so I wrote a short story, and I sent it off to Ben Boven, who had just taken over as editor of Analog, and it was probably presumptuous of me, and I got a rejection letter. But the rejection letter wasn't too bad. It basically said, this isn't a bad story, except for the mess you made out of page 13, And if you can fix it, I'd like to see it again. And I fixed it and sent it back. And Ben bought it, and I thought I was a writer. It Hmm. doesn't quite work that way. I kept track, and I think I, I wrote and submitted something like 26 stories after that before I sold the second one. And to make a long story short, this sort of went on for about six or seven years while I was working Uh, full-time in Washington, D.C. And then one day, Ben sent me another letter, and it said, in essence, I won't buy any more short stories. You're a novelist, and until you write a novel, I won't look at another short story. (laughs) (laughs) And and so I did, and he was right. Uh, Unlike the short stories i sold every novel I've ever written.
1: Wow. That's, anyway, that, that's a great story.
2: Anyway, the first story was published in Analog in 1973, and my first book was published uh, by the Timescape Division of Simon & Schuster. It was called The Fires of Paratime, and it came out in
1: 1982. Ah, uh, yes. And and as they say, that That's history. Yep. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then I wrote uh on the side, still working in Washington DC, I was a legislative director for a congressman and then the staff director for his successor. And then the head of congressional relations and legislation for the US E. P. A. during the Reagan administration. And I was writing on the side and I wrote on the side through all of that and as a stint for a consulting firm. Until about 1990, when uh, I sort of bailed out of Washington D.C. and uh, moved to New Hampshire. Go ahead.
1: Do you think that any of your political, uh, you know, working in politics, transpired in in any of your work?
2: Oh, it's throughout my work. All of my work, even. Even the lightest of fantasy has political overtones in it, Um, also economic overtones, because I was actually trained as an economist originally, and I actually did spend a year or so as an industrial economist. Now, if you want to talk about a dull job, (laughs) I, I was a market research analyst for an industrial pneumatics firm trying to forecast the sales of filters, regulators, and lubricators for heavy industry.
1: (laughs) Okay. Apparently, that was not a very interesting thing for you.
2: Uh, Actually, I found it somewhat interesting, but most people (laughs) wouldn't. Unfortunately, I wasn't terribly suited for it because uh, I was young and naive, as many people who are relatively bright and inexperienced are, and I forgot that politics played a bigger part in jobs than economics did, even when the jobs dealt with economics.
1: Yeah, that's for sure. So so when you moved to New Hampshire?
2: Basically, I cobbled together three jobs. I was telecommuting consulting for the consulting firm I'd worked for full time. I taught English and writing at Plymouth State University about three quarter time and I wrote. And I did that for about two years. And uh, just about the time The Magic of Recluse was published, which is my real first big seller, um, I had just remarried and married a lyric soprano I'd met while at Plymouth State University. And right after we got married, the New Hampshire economy melted down, and she was not on a tenure-track job, and they abolished her job. So she went job hunting, and at that point I was portable. We kids were all out of the house. And um, she got a job at Southern Utah University as the director of the voice of the opera program, and we moved here in Cedar City, and we've been here ever since. And with that move, of course, I couldn't teach part-time at Plymouth State University, so I really had to devote pretty much full-time to writing, and it worked out.
1: It certainly does uh, force you to
2: you know write on a regular basis. I'm a bit of a Calvinist. I've never had much problem with working. My kids say I have a problem with playing, but not with working. <laughs>
1: I can understand that. Uh, well, I'm going to go back and ask a few questions, that, uh, the usual ones. Okay. Do, you have, do you have any writing quirks or stories that you would like to share with the audience? <laughs> or is that um, the hard one to begin with?
2: <laughs> I don't know that I have... Quirks well, I'm sure everybody has quirks. What one person calls a quirk doesn't seem at all quirky. I once made the observation to my to my wife that really I was a pretty simple person. And after she stopped laughing ten minutes later, <laughs> I decided that, well, maybe that wasn't quite right. I probably should have said, I have relatively simple tastes, but my mind mm. is very convoluted. Um, mm. what What do you think is into,
1: is the easiest to write science fiction or fantasy
2: i don't really draw i really don't draw a distinction between the two uh it's strictly i mean it's strictly the parameters in the story i mean basically, if i'm writing science fiction with the possible exception of interstellar travel, which is a little dubious um, given the economics and the physics. Mm-hmm. I try and write things which are scientifically, at least possible theoretically. Um, when I write a fantasy, I'll construct a very logical framework, but that framework doesn't necessarily agree with what current science would, ha- would indicate. But mm-hmm. it still, for me, has to be logically consistent. Right. Um, and I've been occasionally accused over the years of... Being someone who's never written a fantasy, I only write fantasy. I I only write science fiction disguised as fantasy.
1: <laughs> what What do they mean by that?
2: Um, there's a certain group of people, and I don't know whether they're large or small, but they believe that fantasy should have an element of the unpredictable, of hmm. the whimsical, of the unknowable. And I guess my my view on that is human beings being human beings, we turn everything into a tool. And if magic existed, we'd turn that into a tool, and it would be subject to economic forces, social forces, and everything else. Which means that the society, except for the parameters, wouldn't be that much different from a technological society. And I'm certainly not alone in that. I mean, Arthur C. Clarke is renowned for his statement about the fact that uh, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Well, I I may turn it around a little bit in the sense of saying any sufficiently advanced magic is indistinguishable from technology.
1: Also, I would think that would be in the matter of perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, if humans is is one perspective, and obviously, if you're talking about science fiction, uh, you know, another species or another you know type of humanoid. It would be a different perspective.
2: Probably a different perspective, but I don't think you'd have a society without a log- any of any sort without a logical framework of some sort.
1: hmm Which brings us to obviously world building. Do you mm-hmm. think? Uh, because you know some say that fantasy is all about world building, where science fiction is about you know following a parameter
2: of what is going to happen in the future.
1: I think it's kind of the same thing.
2: Actually, I would would agree with you. I'd take it one step further. I think an awful lot of science fiction writers tend to ignore the world building, often to the detriment of the story. Mm. I've seen a fair number, and I won't name, name names, of science fiction novels which could not be. I mean, the technology is possible, but... The other facets of society, the economics, human nature, mm-hmm. simply would not make would make it unworkable.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And fantasy writers, on the other hand, have a tendency often to avoid the economics and not just the politics.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, that's what got me into writing fantasy in the first place. I'd actually written science fiction for almost 20 years before I ever tried to write a fantasy. And I basically wrote The Magic of Recluses because I wanted to prove that you could write a fantasy that had a logical, structural framework for the magic, had workable economics, and had political systems that weren't based on medieval or other folklorish uh, governmental systems.
1: Hmm. That's definitely true. Uh, is there anything that you've ever written that you wish you hadn't after it was published? No, I can't
2: say that. Now, I will say, right, possibly one of the worst detective novels ever written. And when I realized how bad it was, I burned it because I thought, if anything ever happens to me, I never want this to see the light of day.
1: Hmm. As I have heard others, uh, some stories, uh, one from uh, Stephen King, who once he got the rights back from uh, one of his books, he never wanted to see it in print again.
2: Um, uh, well, I think I think we're talking about a little bit different thing. Um, part of it is that I had such a long apprenticeship. I mean, basically, guy got rejected for 10 years. I sold a few and had a few published in the poetry market. I probably only had literally maybe a fifth or an eighth of the short stories I wrote published, so I had a lot of rejection early on that nobody that nobody's ever seen
0: mm.
2: by the time I got to write novels, I was almost forty years old and had twenty years worth of writing experience, so yes, there are things that I wrote early that I would not want anybody to see, but I was fortunate enough that they didn't get published. <laughs>
1: Did you ever consider going back and rewriting them?
2: There are some that I have rewritten or taken parts out of it, but an awful lot of them were so bad that they were. It was just better to start all over again.
1: (laughs) Well, it's it's good that you you can do that, you know. And and I often tell people is you know not everything you write needs to be published or, or shown to anybody. Well okay. that's
2: still true. I mean I still yeah. have some fragments on my computer that I think about, well, maybe I can do something with this and a couple of been have been there on there for fifteen years and I still haven't figured out what I can do with them. <laughs> and
1: some things you should be for the practice of it.
2: Um, I try not to do much practice anymore.
1: No, you you wouldn't have to. You've got it down. <laughs> I'm I well, talking about people who, who haven't gotten it down yet.
2: Well, I mean, I still try and do some very, I mean, I've tried throughout my career to do some very different things.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. And
2: I have probably, and I, I don't think this is egotism, I have probably done more different things than almost anybody in the field. But I don't do it with this sort of, charismatic flash and a lot of it tends to go unnoticed.
1: Hmm. So what do you think inspired you the most uh, in order to get started in your writing other than poetry?
2: I have to say it really was the poetry. Hmm. I mean, I still have a great affinity for it. I still write most of the lyrics to the songs that appear in my books. Now, I'm a lousy musician. Um, (laughs) My wife says I'm not only can I not carry a tune, but I'm the only person she's ever met in forty years of teaching who has absolutely no sense of rhythm whatsoever <laughs> but you can write lyrics to a song if you take the melody in somebody else's words and you're a good wordsmith. you can simply match the rhythms and that will fit the melody there you go
1: so now That's that you now that you're a published author uh. I suspect that people have no problem taking your poetry now.
2: Uh, actually, I have not really published any poetry except in conjunction with my books. I mean, and sometimes I've taken it pretty far. There are two books in the Recluse Saga, Magi of Sayador and Sion of Siodor. They're literally tied together by an embedded book of poetry which is critical to the resolution of the story in the second volume. Hmm.
1: it reminds me of um Ray Bradbury' is one of my favorite favorite all time authors
2: um of course we recently lost him
1: I've, have you met him before in the past?
2: no, i have never met ray i mean i've written i've certainly read i'd say probably a large percentage of his work did so he but never no, can
1: he never considered himself a science fiction writer he often said he writes stories about people
2: <laughs> i would I would actually say i could I could probably in a sense make the same claim mm-hmm. even though that's I go to great, even though I go to great lengths to make sure the technology is accurate in my science fiction and the magic is logical in my fantasy, that's always the backdrop for the stories about the people.
1: Well, do you think that the science fiction part uh, has gotten harder? to judge and to, you know, kind of as if you're an author looking in the future and you're trying to figure out what else new things can you possibly come up with? You think it's getting harder for that because of things that have already come to pass?
2: I think it's getting harder, but I'm not so sure that it's all because of what's come to pass. I think part of the problem that you have is that we're running up against limits. And what I mean by that is, today you can talk with the delay of only a second or two to anybody on the planet instantly. If you've got the right technology with Skype or something else, you can actually look at them and do it. You can't do it as a human being any faster than that. I mean, there is no super faster than instant communication. If you're talking about travel, you can basically get to any place on the planet, if you've got an SR-71, anyway, in a couple of hours. It might be a day if you're using commercial air. But that's a far cry from when it took days or weeks. And even if we had, shall we say, teleports...
0: Mm -hmm
2: it wouldn't change society that much because there's not that much difference for the most part between a few hours and a day. So a lot of the things that would change society or make good stories were really bumping up against the limits, and that makes it harder to come up with things which are newer or unusual or technological advances. And then you also get into the whole question of Theoretically, at least as far as I know, there's still the possibility you could create a hawking wormhole for instantaneous interstellar travel. But there is one small catch, and that mm-hmm. is that it'd probably take the energy of a small black hole to do it
1: yeah and and then, of course, you're taking chances,
2: uh yeah. <laughs> So I think those are the things that make it a little bit harder to do science, do science fiction, and I think people have followed what I would get, say is the area of science fiction where advances are still making, are still occurring fairly rapidly, and that is a sense of, in the sense, the internals of things. Okay, well we can't jump instantly to another solar system, mm-hmm. but we can do virtual reality we can create our own worlds electronically
0: mm-hmm.
2: and so you're seeing I think much more I mean that was certainly foreshadowed in early works by Gibson like Neuromancer but others have certainly done it and it's becoming much more common or alternate worlds mm-hmm. but if things are. there is a feeling that things are not quite so wide open as they once were and I think that makes it a little bit harder to write science fiction. Yeah. Huh. And talking to the editors that I know. They find that it's harder and harder to get good science fiction.
1: Yeah, that's right here.
2: My editor uh. always, always jumps up and down when I tell him that I'm going to write another science fiction book.
1: <laughs> you think he's having a harder time selling it?
2: Um, I no, I think you'd have a harder time buying it. Mm. There are just not okay. as many authors who are writing good science fiction
1: No, I know I know, and you know we're losing some of our our best long time science fiction writers just you you were on that and you know moving up on the ladder there uh, and that's why it's interesting to talk to you being a hard science fiction writer such as yourself trying to find new ideas uh, is that getting tougher for you to do
2: um a little bit but part of part of that is as you get more experienced you're facing different things mm. technically it's easier for me to write but because there's an un call it spoken parameter that I work into things, which is I try my damnedest not to repeat exactly anything that I've done before. Well,
1: yeah, 60 books kind of gets hard not to do that.
2: Well, well, I mean, in one respect, I do write similar books, and I have to admit it. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of a digression, but since it involves Robert Heinlein, I hope you won't mind.
1: No, I won't mind.
2: Years ago, Heinlein delivered a speech at the Naval Academy. It was called Channel Markers. And in it, Heinlein basically said there were really only three plots in literature.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I, think Bob, I think Bob was wrong, because I think there is a fourth plot, but he wouldn't have considered it a plot. The three plots that he named were um, Seven at One Blow, or The Little Shot Who Becomes a Big Shot. And if you reverse that, it's a classical tragedy. The second one is the love story, and it can be boy meets boy, boy meets girl, robot meets girl, whatever, but it's the love story.
1: Nice.
2: And the third one is the person who learns something. And in Heinlein's, and I think in all literature, you can combine all three of those. Now, the plot that he didn't mention is what I call the James Bond plot. It is the continued mindless adventure story. and if you why do I call it the James Bond plot well if you look at any James Bond movie except or book except one any woman who starts the book is dead before it's over any woman who ends the book is not in the next book so there's no love sex maybe but no love (laughs) Uh, he's always Commander James Bond 007 he never loses rank or gains it. So he neither becomes a big shot nor a little shot. And he makes the same mistakes in every book, so he never learns anything. <laughs> and we never considered that. <laughs> well, I mean Heinlein is the one that put me onto this, so I can't I can't claim anything except for thinking about the mindless adventure story or the James Bond plot. But um I tend to, getting back to the point of this, I tend to write books about people who learn something. And I try and work in the other two plots as well. But I guess I believe to a certain degree in, call it personal transcendence. I'm not into it.
1: Personal growth type of thing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'm not into it for shock value, for the sake of shock values, or woe is me. I think there's enough woe is me in the world as it is.
1: Mm. So, do you think some of the uh, the books published now with long stories drawn out? You think that's again
2: part of the uh, James Bond type of story? Um. I think it appeals to it, but I think I think there's something more at heart in it. I mean, if you look at the Wheel of Time, or the Game of Thrones, or even my own Recluse series, I don't think any of those three are mindless adventure. They're often incredibly intricate. I think it's more that people really want details in their escapism. Mm-hmm. That they really want a real world that they can relate to that makes sense. Perhaps in a world like ours, where so much doesn't seem to make sense. Um, I would say that the Mindless Adventure story tends to be more the province of the, call it fantasy light, and I won't name any of them, but where it is just indeed gore and adventure, gore and adventure, gore and adventure.
1: I think that your readers have gotten a little more sophisticated in their tastes. Not mm-hmm. only, yeah, maybe you maybe you're, you disagree.
2: <laughs> I I have to say I disagree. Mm. I think readers have gotten more jaded often in their tastes. Ah, okay. And I think that's why you're seeing much more. I mean. I'll be honest, I could only read one and a half books of the Game of Thrones. Uh, George R. 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 Martin is technically an absolutely marvelous writer. But in terms of the attention he lavishes on cruelty, violence, and gore, Mm. I'm sorry. That wears wears on me way too much too soon. I much prefer something like his earlier Dying of the Light where there was more call it human development in a sense and yes the cruelty of the universe was there but it wasn't revealed in every sword cut every treachery on all hands etc. There was still some poetry in it as opposed to just The Endless Body Count. Hmm. You
1: have your certain likes. Do you have specific things on television that you like to watch?
2: (laughs) Documentaries. Okay. (laughs) I.
1: And that would make sense based on your essays.
2: I don't care much for. I won't say anything, everything, but I don't care much for most of what is serious television today. Um, as a matter of fact, I can't think of a series on television that I have followed in at least 20 years.
1: Yeah, I usually don't like something until it's been on for at least a couple of seasons. So By then it's gotten, you know, the writing's either gotten really good or really bad, you know. So you're either going to like it or you're not.
2: Well, part of that, of course, is just simply a matter of time.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's
2: true. I I tend to prefer to create rather than be entertained. There you go. uh, There is only so much time.
1: Yes. Uh, Yeah, I often wish we had more time or or had more hands run together. Um, Being an essayist, do you think that it's part of the job of a hard science fiction writer to write essays that deal with deeper philosophical and political issues?
2: Not necessarily. Um, I happen to like to do that, but I don't think it's necessary. I mean, I've read some delightful science fiction that probably only touched on those deeper issues. I think it's a matter of personal taste on the part of the author. I mean, if you really want to get right down to it, if we as authors don't entertain, it doesn't matter much what else we do because nobody's going to read it.
1: Yeah. Especially true now, I think, more so than ever.
2: Uh, I would agree with that.
1: Yeah. as it's, For instance... Um, a lot of things that we're told now as authors is that you have to come out running. you can't really tell a story, and that, that's completely different than what you know we read as you know in our high school or junior high years um and writers such as yourself works as you know uh, of long time authors uh, which goes to show you that people are are, as you say, jaded, uh, I think they're, yeah, it, probably a jading and I'll, also some other things, but
2: uh, well, we also they want to much, be entertained. <laughs> we're also a much more impatient society.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's the word I was looking for, impatience.
2: And people want to, I want to get to it now. And, I mean, I've said pretty much publicly, if you want, all you want is action, don't read my books. You're just going to be disappointed. Yes, they have action in them, sometimes a lot of action, but that's not what they're all about.
1: What would you consider them to be about if you're if you're telling somebody?
2: They're about people. They're about pe- how people face things, how they grow, how sometimes they disappoint, how sometimes they are disappointed and how they face personal challenges and what it does to them.
1: It's definitely a philosophy that Ray Bradbury would have liked. <laughs> That's his philosophy as
2: well. I mean, I guess the other thing is pretty much, I won't say always, but pretty much every hero or heroine in my books does indeed attain what they thought they wanted to attain. Ah, yes. But the cost of doing so is so much higher than they ever imagined at the beginning of the book that you're often left with the question of, well, you did it. Is it worth it?
1: Which is always a question that, you know, if we really think about it, we ask ourselves.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know,
1: you go back and say, well, gee, now that this is over, now that I've gone this direction, would I have gone a different direction if I had a chance again?
2: Or would I have done this with these people knowing what I now know?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: But of course, in (laughs) in life, you don't get do-overs. No. But... I guess I sort of feel that as an author, you can give people in, an insight while entertaining them into what some of the costs of these great and glorious deeds are.
1: Yeah, which is a little more realism, I think. Yeah, to be a to be a true hero, it costs.
2: I've never believed that a true hero was somebody who was unafraid.
1: No, of course not.
2: The true hero- the true hero is the one who is scared literally to death. I would have used a different phrase, not on the air, but
1: uh yeah, uh,
2: but who goes ahead and does it with all of that fear?
1: yeah, yeah, definitely, not a James Bond type of uh just going to do it, but a Yeah, a reluctant hero type of character. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, being a science fiction writer, uh, somebody asked me this question and asked you what do you think is the next biggest change in our society?
2: Are we um talking. I'm not quite sure how to interpret that. The next biggest coming change in our society, yeah, or? I think I think they they're, they're looking in in the future. Um. I think the biggest change we're going to see in our society is the impact. And this is going to sound funny, but it's the impact of the meritocracy. Um, we're already seeing signs of it in our country today. What happens? When you've got an open enough society so that those who, with abilities that are rewarded by society rise to the top Ah. and marry people who also have abilities. Yes, there's a certain amount of, I guess, what you would call reversion to the mean genetically, but that doesn't work over time if you continually breed the best of the best, and that's what's beginning to happen. In our society, what does yeah. that do? I mean, okay. I think the, the repercussions, the ramifications for, for for social upheaval, because we're already seeing it. Not everybody can be whether the top. Not everybody can be Brandon Sanderson or George R. R. Martin in writing science fiction or fantasy. There's only one spot at the top of the totem pole. And the drop-off, if you look at the statistics, for example, in the book market between, say, number one and number 35 on the New York Times bestseller list, is pretty astounding. If you're not in the top two or three, you're making a nice living, but you're not a multimillionaire. Right. And the same is true of every other profession. Yes, you've got all those law school graduates. And maybe one in a thousand will make big bucks as the partner of a senior law firm. One—I think the number is—I saw it somewhere. One in something like fourteen thousand high school basketball players will become an NBA star.
1: <laughs> yeah. And,
2: and yet we have a culture which sa- says that everybody can make it if you just try hard enough. Ah. And no. You have to try hard enough or you won't make it. But it takes both talent and determination and, frankly, a certain amount of luck. Yeah, that's for sure. And it's going to get harder and harder for people who do not have the advantages of talent. And those with talent are going to become more and more entrenched because, frankly... If you're talented and have money, you're going to have a higher percentage of talented children. And your money will allow those talented children to stay at the top of the pyramid. The less talented ones will drop out, but since uh, there will still be enough talented ones, you're going to basically see a self-reinforcing hierarchy. And we're beginning to see it already. And I think that is one of the real interesting possibilities of the next change. And unless you go to something like the Nordic model, where they're insisting on everybody getting the same level of education, which is a form of socialism, I think you're going to see a conflict on a worldwide scale, not necessarily an armed conflict, but between those two kinds of approaches. But technology... as As a commentator on my blog once observed, and I think it was an astute observation, technology is a multiplier of everything. It multiplies the good and it multiplies the bad.
1: Mm -hmm. I see, okay. So you think that this is the reason why society is becoming more unhappy with their situation.
2: Well, I think technology has another effect, and I think this ties into what you're talking about. With, I guess I'd call it the fragmentation or the segmentation created by computerization and telecommunications, we're seeing people fragment and polarize into Smaller groups, call it affinity groups, call it belief groups, so that if you are very, very conservative, you can watch Fox News, you can watch certain kinds of entertainment on satellite television, which reinforce your Uh views. You can follow the National Review or what have you. If you're more liberal, you may follow CNN, um, take different sets of publications, and with the Internet, You can just communicate with those people who believe the way you do. And if you look at our political system and the, the, the representatives, people talk about gridlock as if, oh, gee, that's just those folks up in Washington and they're dumb. No, that's just those folks up in Washington and they're smart. Basically, each member of Congress represents pretty accurately his or her constituency. Their constituents, or I should say the majority of his or her constituency, but they're representing more and more polarized groups. And technology magnifies that polarization.
1: Wow, okay. I don't see a logical conclusion to this, though. Well, a logical conclusion, but not one that's going to be good. <laughs>
2: I'm afraid that at the moment I'm not sure that there is one that's going to be good until people start to realize, and that's a very hard thing for people to realize. Because everybody likes to believe, I certainly like to believe it of myself, that what I believe is right, and by golly, that's the way we ought to do things. Mm -hmm.
1: So do you think... uh because, you know, America has been a land where we have our own opinions and we're allowed to express our opinions, have been actually, might be causing some of this
2: polarization. Well, there's so many factors that go into it. Yeah, my was
1: thinking about it. (laughs)
2: Well, one of the things is, I mean, we have chosen a system of government which reinforces that. Yeah. If yeah. if we had, shall we say, a more parliamentary system, the way some of the Europeans do, where minority parties got representation on the percentage of the vote they had, you'd have to compromise more in the legislature. But we have a two-party winner-take-all system, and that does have a tendency to basically create an either or situation and mm-hmm. when you put that together with technology that tends to exempl- uh magnify it uh but you're seeing those trends everywhere it's just mm-hmm. that in our system something that worked very well for two centuries is running against running up against a technology which is doing something which is doing which is in essence Magnifying all of its flaws.
0: Hmm.
1: Well, that's a, that's a a little heavier scene than I wanted to talk about, but it, you, you, that's, about what, that. it, that's what you get I'll when you when you start talking to a, a true science fiction writer. <laughs> is uh, and and that's the fascinating part. You uh, know, I've been going to conventions for over twenty years, and. This is one reason I, I go is in order to talk to people who have who think beyond the scope of what's right in front of them, and uh, I learned to, you know, love their work because of that, because of that meeting.
2: Well, we do try to, we at least try to think outside the box, so to speak. So
1: I know you've got a book coming up that is um, coming out very soon here.
2: Actually, I just had one that come out about two weeks ago. Okay. That, that was uh, Imager's Battalion, and it is the, the sixth book in the Imager portfolio and the third book about uh, one character the next book, which is Antigon Fire, will be out in May. And uh, that's also about that same character in the imager portfolio. And then I have a standalone science fiction novel coming out in September called The One-Eyed Man.
1: Ah. So your, uh, your imager's books are kind of getting closer together as far as publishing.
2: Well, <laughs> that sort of... Part of that is just because of the publisher scheduling. Um, I mean, basically speaking, it would be two and two if um, I mean two last year and two this year if uh, Imager's Battalion had been released three weeks earlier, but it got pushed into this year.
0: Um,
2: on on ah. the average, on the average, I have basically been able to produce about two and a half books a year for the last twenty years. Hmm, yeah.
1: And that, two and a half books for just one series or two and a half books for all? No,
2: that's for everything. Um, Right now, the Recluse series has 16 books in it. And I'm frankly working on a 17th. Imager Portfolio has eight books. Six of them are out, but all eight so far have been completed. Um, Corian Chronicles has eight books in it and the Spell Song Cycle has five.
1: Okay, so in other words, you're you're ahead of the game and the publisher just are setting it so that way they can put out two a uh, year.
2: Well, I, they'll put out with a... Basically, it takes... If you are not, say, George R. R. Martin or uh, Jordan and Sanderson... It's cost-effective for them to take about a year to produce a book. When you reduce the publication time from when you turn in the manuscript until it's published by too much, your costs go up. Mm -hmm. Because publishing is a fairly low-margin business, um, they (laughs) they, they prefer not to do that. So basically, pretty much, my books come out anywhere from 11 to 15 months after I turn them in. And part of that's just due to their publication schedule because they don't want too many books of a given kind to come up in a given month. Um, They're not trying to stack it one way or the other. Mm -hmm. They would obviously prefer that I stay on one series because they don't want them too far apart, but I write fast enough that that hasn't been too much of a problem.
1: Very good, very good.
2: I, I know quite a few authors who have to
1: work in multiple series just to make a decent living. Do you, find, especially nowadays, do you find that's a case more now than before?
2: Um, if we're going to be very blunt about it, I can't afford to write too many science fiction novels. Okay. They don't sell as well, they don't sell as well as the fantasies. You even,
1: have, though you, even though you're known as a
2: science fiction author. Well, actually, you've been in the field long enough to know that I'm a science fiction author. Most, <laughs> most people think of me as a fantasy author. Maybe go into a Barnes & Noble, for example. I'll have probably anywhere between a half shelf and a shelf of my books. And I'll be lucky if there are three titles in there that are science fiction. All the rest will be some my fantasies.
1: So, but mainly because you sell better for fantasy, or that you think that people are just reading more fantasy?
2: I think it's both. I mean, this is true of me. It's not necessarily true of all. Harry Turtledove told me, for example, that uh, his science fiction sells far better than his fantasy. Uh, But I think for most authors who write both of them in quantity, I think, generally speaking, uh, the fantasy does tend to sell better.
1: I wonder if Harry is considering his alternate history to be fantasy. Yes. Okay. I'm just curious then.
2: <laughs> At least, I mean, that's what—that's the impression he gave me when we were talking yeah. about
1: it.
2: Uh,
1: interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. I've yeah, been uh, reading, the, the, especially with with him. I've been reading his. Uh, alternate history. More so than I I think his other his other works. So that's interesting that you would take that.
2: I, well, wait a second, let me put it this way. <laughs> if you're talking gun, <laughs> if you're talking guns of the South, he considers that science fiction. If,
0: oh, you're okay.
2: talking, oh, if you're talking the alternate history of the Byzantine Empire, that's fantasy.
1: Okay. Okay. It's that's interesting then. Okay. Um, somebody just asked me a question for you of what kind of research did you have to do in order to write your books <laughs> I, I okay
2: <laughs> actually, one of the great things about what i the way I got into this was I didn't write a novel as I said earlier until I was almost forty mm-hmm. by that time, I had had Almost ten years in national politics. Had been a navy pilot. I'd done a lot of things, and an awful lot of what's in my books is just simply based on experience. But Thanks. the other thing, the other thing is that you can either research a, bo- a specific book or you can research all the time. I research all the time in the sense that I just I am an information junkie, if you will, <laughs> and the postman just groans every time he comes to the house. I, we we actually counted it up, and I think we get something like 60 periodicals every month. <laughs> and I re- pretty much read all the ones to me uh, pretty much cover to cover. And they range from everything from science to economics to archaeology to history. This, I think
1: this I think leads into a good question and uh, something that you were reading, like say periodicals of you know uh, science or, or or anything else.
2: Do you get any ideas from those? Yeah, sometimes I do. Um, although it's not it's not necessarily a direct correlation. Yeah, that's right. I understand. Kind
1: of an inkling of an idea.
2: It's it's more that the body of knowledge I get at some point I'll i I'll link things together and think, well, what about this and that? Mm-hmm. And how would this fit in? The
1: what if. The what if is wonderful, isn't it?
2: <laughs> well, in a sense, every, every novel is based on a basic what if. Yeah. But you see I mean, that
1: some correlations, and you're saying, "Well, what if I? You know, what if it was this, and I can change it?"
2: Well, yeah. I mean, the whole Soprano Sorceress uh, Spell Song cycle was based on the on. My wife is a professional opera singer who now directs an opera and teaches voice, and the question came to my mind, and I said, "What if? What if?" somebody like her were transferred into a world where magic was controlled by music. And there were a few interesting sidelights on it, which made perfect sense. I'm not sure everybody caught them, but one of them simply was there wouldn't be very many sorcerers or sorceresses. And the reason for that is pretty simple when you get down to it. To get a trained voice, and you'd need a trained voice to do magic under the parameters I, I postulated you have to train that voice between puberty and no later than the early 30s, but preferably earlier. This is the most self-centered, selfish period in human development. And if music can kill you, how many people are going to trust their students very far? Huh. Yeah. Yeah. there aren't going to be too many sorcerers or sorceresses.
1: There you go. <laughs> so I was reading on your website uh, something about an audio publisher. And I was considering how many different publishers you would have to have with not only your print series, but your audio publishers as well. And then, of course, you've gotten to foreign rights and all the other stuff does that get all very confusing
2: it gets very confusing although I only have an audio publisher for the imager portfolio series nobody's wanted to touch anything else
1: um, That's I read hmm.
2: and yes it does get confusing because I don't have an agent and I've never had an agent And this was not not exactly my choice. And for any young authors who are out there, I would say, don't do it. If you can at all get an agent, do so. Especially now. But in my particular case, even after I was selling novels, I could never get an agent who could do more for me than I'd done for myself. Mm-hmm. And I refused to pay money to have somebody do what I could do I only wanted to pay money if they could do more than I could do and nobody who could ever do more than I could do for myself ever wanted to be my agent
1: <laughs> or willing to willing to do more than what you already did for yourself
2: yeah and I mean I had one big name agent who told me twice turned me down twice um he said, I'll probably regret this, but I just don't think I'd work with you. And I've always wondered about that until an editor told me that this particular agent likes to be really part of the creative process. And I don't work that way. I mean, I've got a reputation with my publisher of being of being extraordinarily dependable, but basically, in the way I write... With one exception of the spell song books, which I had my wife read because I wanted to make sure that I didn't screw up the music horribly. Uh, nobody sees a manuscript of mine before my editor sees it, uh-huh. and I don't even ask for a contract until I finish the first draft. Um, David and I worked out an arrangement very early on, which I said, "Don't ever tell me." how to write something or how to fix it. Just tell me what the problems are, and if I can't fix it, then we'll talk about your suggestions. David's been my editor for over 30 years, and we've never gotten to stage two. <laughs> now, he's often mentioned a lot of problems in stage one, but... That's that's a good relationship, then. Well, yeah, but I mean... As he's pointed out, every editor has a slightly different relationship with every author that he works with. Mm -hmm. That works for us. Uh, It probably works for us because I had almost 20 years worth of writing experience. Because every civilian or every non non official writing job I had had a huge writing component in it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wrote technical analysis, research papers, policy papers, speeches, you name it. All of that twenty years before I actually wrote a novel. So in terms of the technical side of writing, I had a pretty substantial backlog of work before I started being a uh, before I started writing novels. And I think that is one of the things that allowed that relationship to work. I'm not sure it would work with a younger writer without that much much uh, writing experience.
1: Right. Well, I do know that um, there are authors who don't do very good crossover at all. If they write nonfiction, then they pretty much just say in nonfiction uh, that they have no grasp of dialogue. Or characterization, for that matter. But on the opposite side, if you're a fiction author, sometimes you don't play well on the nonfiction side.
2: Well, I have to say, I've got stuff published (laughs) in... Pretty much anywhere. All stuff. <laughs> from poetry to technical articles to obviously the fiction to short stories.
1: Yeah, because that doesn't seem to be a problem for you. <laughs> Which is, is uh definitely a plus for you being able to, you know, put uh, having done writing in a lot of different jobs. And uh being able to go further further. Did you find that uh when you started writing in the fiction stories, you know, with dialogue, that you had to do a little research on how to do that?
2: No, I can't say that I did. Hmm. Maybe I should have, but
1: <laughs> I never... <laughs> As I used to tell people, they, they do, it, do it incorrectly, and I say, you know, all you need to do is pull a book off the shelf. Somebody who, who's written for, you know for a while uh, uh, any big name publisher will do and take a look at how they constructed their dialogue
2: well I'll give you an example actually it, it was one of my more ambitious works but the first one I did along this line was called Arch Form Beauty and it is a science fiction novel a couple centuries in the future and it's told from the first person viewpoint of five separate different five Different characters, Ah, yes, and the linguistic styles of each character are very different
1: yeah that's that's very powerful then that <laughs> that's a hard thing to do um
2: uh, yeah, well, actually, <laughs> um
1: you had fun with it, didn't you? <laughs>
2: I did have fun with it. it. Basically, it's based on it's an arch form, and I can't think of the. I think it's Berlioz, but I'm not sure. Anyway, he wrote a piece called Concerto for Orchestra, which was an arch form, and like unlike a symphony, which has four movements, an arch form has five, and it's four movements around a central fifth theme, a fifth movement, and arch form beauty, is four men around a woman who is a Singer, and at the beginning of the book none of them know each other and as the book progresses each chapter is told by the different characters so that it moves along chronologically but through the characters it eventually draws them all together and it's also a sort of mystery thriller as well
1: Wow I'm definitely going to have to take a look at that one that's one I haven't read yet, so. <laughs> well, I heard that you're going to be in Mesa, and that's going to be at mm-hmm. uh, in, Pe- on Coppercon. August. Yeah, CopperCon Revolution. Uh, I've been going to CopperCon for, well, again, those 20-some-odd years, uh, August 8th through 11th. And that'll be right here in my backyard in Mesa. So we'll definitely meet. Well that'd be great. Anyway, <laughs> we'll do a follow up. We'll we'll sit down and, and and to one of the parties and just talk. That'd be cool.
2: That would be very good.
1: I do have one more question for you. Ask her two more questions. One is from BK Walker in Pennsylvania. She wants to know, uh, based on the fact that you're even though you're a longtime writer, what's the hardest part of marketing that you do for yourself?
2: That's changed. That's changed over the years. Initially the hardest part was going out there and meeting people. Um that was the most difficult thing initially. Now I have to say it's probably the it's the travel. And now it's the
1: travel because of the problems with traveling.
2: Oh right. And uh it's also gotten to be harder and harder and because i happen to live in a rather out of the way spot in utah making airline connections is not exactly easy and it's too far to drive to any place except las vegas
1: <laughs> <laughs> well you are going to two places in uh say here in utah this year
2: yep and that's not short uh, it's 200 miles to Provo, and it's 250 miles to Salt Lake.
1: Oh, wow. You are up against the border, aren't you?
2: Yeah. We're in the southwest corner of Utah. It's oh. actually, as I said, closer to Las Vegas. It's 160 miles to Las Vegas.
1: <laughs> now, it's not too bad to, uh, if you're going to, that's one of the four, four Corners then, isn't
2: it? No, actually, Four Corners is on the... On the uh, on that- southeast side. We're on the southwest side.
1: Okay. So you have to go all the way across Utah in order to get, you know, uh, probably not going to drive.
2: No, and actually... Arizona? No.
1: Okay. (laughs) So my last question for you, and it's been such a pleasure to to talk to you. Uh, This is a question I ask, and I think that uh, is more appropriate for you than, than some other authors that I have actually asked this question to. My uh, special question is: Now that you have successfully slain the dragon, how will you celebrate?
2: By writing another book.
1: And which one will it be? Fantasy
2: uh, or science fiction?
1: Well,
2: it could be either. The next one I'll work. Uh, the next two will be fantasy, and after that, I don't know. I mean, I do this not just because it's a living but I do it because that's what I want to do. And I'm grateful that it allows me to keep doing what I want to do.
1: That's a great answer (laughs) then. Well, it has been an awesome pleasure. And I know that I'm missing some questions and and whatnot, but I I don't want to take too much more of your time. We've already been running over an hour. It doesn't seem like it, but it has been. So, um, I appreciate you coming on and talking to us, and I know that uh, those people from uh, Capricorn are the ones that asked me to sit down and have an uh, audio interview with you so that way they can promote you, and I'm definitely offer that.
2: Well, I am too. Long. I hope I'll meet a lot of people I don't know when I get there. Oh, I'm sure you will.
1: <laughs> well, until then, have a great night, and I appreciate your time.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
1: That was Lee Modesset, and he is such a wonderful person and has enjoyed talking to him. And we're now getting people who are logging in, which is interesting since it's uh, already well past an hour. Uh, sorry to say that we've already ran out of time with Lee. I probably could have gone on and on, but that didn't want to take too much more of his time than, than we already did. Uh we are taking some we're gonna be doing some of these questions that we had during during the show and also some extras that I didn't ask him, uh and he will be writing those up for us. And I will have that in the Wad newspaper um uh for the March issue. And it just you know, obviously it's earlier than expected for uh public for publicity for because that's not until the beginning of August. But I would also at the same time like to plug the, uh, that would be awful if I don't mention this, Leprechaun 39. Of course, I am also the co-chair for Leprechaun 39, and that is going to be in Mesa also, in my backyard, Um, on May 9th through the 12th. We have a film festival on the night, which is Thursday night. We're very excited to have that because it's something we haven't haven't done before uh it's all gonna be independent uh independent short films and uh, we're we'll definitely be doing some critiquing for it and showing that throughout the weekend but uh the winners will be awarded on Thursday night. If you're interested in finding anything more about that, go to leprechaun all right down here leprechaun.org, dot slash lep thirty nine and uh that will have uh give you information about our guests of honors we have the industry uh art industry director for wizards of the coast which we're very excited to have he is the art director in charge of creating monsters and deciding on the monsters for Dungeons and Dragons as well as For the Magic Gathering Cards. So we're real happy to have John Shindahedi. And he's coming in from all the way from Seattle to to be with us that weekend. Uh, We also have uh, Raymond Swanland and Raymond's uh, into a lot of different things including uh, some of the covers for tour, tour books which of course uh, Mr. Madesett has also a writer for. So uh, he writes, he, he, uh, Mr. Swanlin is an artist extraordinaire. He has done work for uh, Dungeons and & Dragons and Magic Gathering Cards, also Oddworld. And he also <clears throat> has done you know, several, or if not more, Uh, book covers. so he's an all-around artist and we're looking forward to meeting him pretty young guy so uh take a look on the website and find out more about him Uh, we've got a music guest of honor as well as a local artist guest which is shelby robertson and he has some uh really interesting works you got to take a look at his at at his website as well and um And, of course, our main guest of honor for author is going to be Jack Medevit, and Jack is going to be on line with us, Um, hopefully, in the next two weeks. I'm still working that out, trying to get a hold of him, and setting a date to sit down less like I did with uh, Mr. Medevit and talk to him about his business, talk to him about the business that we've all been talking to uh, Lee Lee about for the last hour and that is obviously a publishing industry and he again is also another very long time science fiction author so we're very excited to have him coming not only Leprechaun but sitting down and talking to us on the radio so that's going to be it for now I'm going to go ahead and and, uh, sign off obviously I have so many other things I could be telling you about Um, but for those who are local if if you want to meet me um, talk to me about your books if you have any. Uh, I'm going to be at the Book Browse on this Sunday, the thirteenth. Is that right? To make sure I'm right, I'm just looking through a month. Yeah, seventeenth. Uh, from Eleven in the morning until four in the afternoon. Uh, we're going to be doing a show, uh, live show at that uh, at that location. And that's LoFi right on Main Street in in Mesa, and that's a coffee shop that we like to do some of our uh, live shows from. And of course, uh, this will be the second book browse we've done since uh, December. So uh, we're very happy to have everyone come in and and find out about the books of other local authors, as we would like we like to actually help our local authors. And so that will be this Sunday on the 17th. So if you'd like to meet me and meet some authors and find out what the local authors are writing here, do um, you want to talk about uh, Leprechaun, you want to talk about the newspaper, uh, the WAD newspaper, then definitely want to come in and talk to me. Um, there's brand-new newspaper on the genre. And I'm writing that down for you there. The net. It's... Um, we're going to, is where you're going to find this interview. Also, the show is going to be aired in its entirety, not only on Blog Talk, but also on the WA.net. Uh So you'll be able to get that right from the front page. Um, information on the show is the very obviously the very first one tomorrow. Oh, that's what I need to say. Ah, I knew there was something I'm missing. Tomorrow, same time, same place, same bat channel is this Arizona time, mountain time. Uh we are on the air with Alexander Gallant. and I have had interviewed him uh a year uh last year uh about his other book, Titanic book. And now he's got a radio show that he's doing uh, regarding the Undead which is obviously based on on uh, Dracula. So all those vampire Fans can definitely sit in on that one. So that starts tomorrow at 6 o'clock, same time, same bat channel. And we will be sitting down and talking to Alexander about his his radio show and why he wanted to make it into he's scripting it and how that's working, how uh, the different characters are being played out and what he sees uh, to be the case for Vampire. I'm gonna say good night. It is uh, it's wonderful to see everyone again. We've got a lot of things coming up this year, and I'm very excited to start the new season with, with obviously one of one of our favorite uh, science fiction authors and fantasy authors. And you guys have a great night. This is K-Wad Radio, and this is Patty Holstrand signing out for today. Thank you.